Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. One of the most common concerns I currently hear from investors is where to find opportunities in today's market. Rates are at an all-time low, as we all know, so cash and term deposits have very limited appeal. But equities on both domestic and international markets have had a really spectacular run in calendar year 2019. Uh, So far, I'll make that point, so far, uh, leaving investors a little bit worried that there's not much out there to get excited about. Today, I'm at the Morningstar Individual Investor Conference in Sydney, where Fidelity International Portfolio Manager Kate Howard has been sharing her thoughts on where to find opportunities in today's market. She's kindly agreed to discuss some of her best investment ideas with us today. Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Kate, you manage Australian, uh, the Australian Opportunities Fund for Fidelity. How do you see the Australian share market at the moment in terms of the value that it offers investors? Well, it's true that the market is stretched in many places relative to those stocks' individual history. Um, But of course, equities exist in a broader investment universe. So if you were to take a purist view and say all my shares are overvalued uh, and you you sell out, where are you going to go? You know, other asset classes look quite overvalued, probably more so. Um, and cash uh, is going to give you no return and um, leaves you exposed if there's any uptick in inflation. So this is the post-QE world that we live in. The quantitative easing policies that came out of central banks in Japan and the US were designed to shift people out the risk curve. So make let's make safe, low-risk investments unattractive, and then hopefully people will take their money and invest in uh, productive assets in the economy and we'll get some employment growth and we'll get economic activity growth. And those policies have been a little bit successful in the real economy, but the major impact has been in the financial economy where they've started off uh, an ugly contest of asset classes where fixed income becomes uh, bid up and therefore unattractive, Uh, equities then get bid up and you just cascade through, you know, we're now working through, you kind of, you name an asset class and valuations are pretty stretched. Um, the the question is, uh, you know, the trouble is we have an excess of savings. People do need to put their, their money somewhere. And the fundamental attractiveness of equities is you do get exposure to underlying growth in the economy and the potential to outpace inflation. Uh, we are at a point where quantitative easing has turned bonds into equities and kind of turned equities into bonds. And what I mean by that is bonds are now pricing in such low interest rates that you can have very small shifts in interest rate expectations and they have huge impacts on the value of bonds. So bonds for the past couple of years have been offering the sort of volatility that historically was expected from equities. So bonds being the safe defensive asset class, well at these valuations they actually offer quite a bit of volatility. On the other hand, uh, the equities that we've been attracted to are ones that give you a return ahead of bonds. So we're looking for bond proxies in the equity market. So the market has really um, sought after those uh, equities that pay a high dividend yield, so the bond proxies. So in a, in a QE world, um, bonds have the volatility of equities. Uh, equities are sought after for the income of bonds. Uh, and so it's very hard to kind of differentiate between them. But in, a, in that relative context, equities are actually not so bad. 
<laughs> That's an awesome summary. I love that. In the in the in the relative context, which all of our investors are, yeah. equities are not so bad. Which is you know it's great news if you're an investor, right? It's it's worth knowing that it's not a great idea to go to cash and just sit there and hide and hope that uh, valuations come back because that is one thing we have heard from investors waiting for a pullback in the market that just hasn't happened this year for sure. Well, historically, um, you know, there's that saying that the markets climb the wall of worry. And I think this year has been a fantastic example of that. This has been one of those um, grudging bull markets where shares have gone up despite everyone um, being pensive and, and, and full of worry. Is it? Yeah, I'm, I'm frequently one of those people where I tend to see all the reasons why not to do it and then watch as things climb away. It's, um, it's been quite fascinating to observe. Typically, market timing strategies don't create value. No, because because you know we're we're generally you know generally people uh, you know sell out at the wrong time and buy back at the wrong time. Uh, It's very difficult uh, to make money, and certainly that's not our approach. Uh, For all of my clients who give me money, they are giving me money to invest in Aussie equities. They don't want me to make a market timing decision. There are you know funds out there that can do that and can go to forty percent cash. That's not me. I don't do that, Um, and so I am always looking to be fully invested. But I think uh, most of the time, you know, that's the right call to make. Um, And with the flexibility to shift within the market to wherever the best opportunities are at that time. I think, firstly, you're absolutely right. You know, when people go to a professional to manage their money, they're asking them to manage it, right, rather than to time the market and get out. If they were hoping to stay in cash, they probably would have stayed in cash. Uh, But in addition to that, I've... uh, had to uh, to write a couple of summaries on the year so far recently and it's fascinating looking back at January and going in January we were expecting two rate increases and we were expecting when I say we I don't mean me personally I mean NAB economists who yeah. were absolutely within the consensus at that point in time and after a really rough December quarter last year well things aren't looking too good for the ASX and they aren't looking too good on international markets we've been the exact opposite experience here we've had three rate cuts we've had markets doing very nicely thank you it's been quite different. But you've made the point that you're a bottom-up stock picker. So you're coming from the other angle, which is I'm looking for companies that have potential rather than worrying about the wall of worry. You're looking at the companies themselves. Where do you start when you're going through that process? Oh, um, well, uh, you know, you can start uh, anywhere you want, but you, you want to do a really thorough understanding of the economics of the business. So I always want to understand uh, the return on capital. So if you put a dollar into this business, you know, does it, does it throw off three cents, 20 cents, 50 cents? And then the ability to reinvest that. So is this a business where you can continue to reinvest and then compound that return? Uh, or is this a business where it's pretty static and you've got no competitive advantage? So I, my first question, if I'm, I'm trying to work up a business and you know, working with the analyst who's covering it, is to really understand those fundamental uh, economics of the business and that's well in advance of any thought of valuation because you first got to have an understanding of is this a great business a good business okay business bad business it's only once you understand that that you can then start to say okay well then what's the right valuation to apply um, in a small narrow market like Australia um, I, I've never seen the point of saying I'm only going to look at one type of market inefficiency I'm only going to look at stocks where the growth potential is underappreciated by the market and be a growth investor, or I'm only going to look at bombed out stocks that are cheaper than they should be and be a value investor. In a small market, I think you've got to you know, pick up uh, money off the floor wherever you can find it. 
And so, uh, you know, there might be a great company that is uh, slightly undervalued or going to continue to be a great company even though the valuation is a little bit rich. Or there might be a so-so company that is really bombed out in valuation. So I am, you know, open to all sorts of combinations of that, you know, uh, wonderful economics uh, with an okay valuation or, you know, okay economics but a fantastic valuation. There's a whole range of opportunities out there. That's a pretty fabulous summary and I think if I speak to most of our investors I think they take the same approach they don't try to define themselves too carefully to uh, to uh, one type of strategy or another one of the sessions today focused on the challenges for retail and there are lots of other sectors in Australia that are perhaps facing greater headwinds than they might have a couple of years ago. Do you think that the macro concerns that investors are carrying around at the moment are priced in? You made a point that things are not looking particularly cheap, but do you think some of these concerns are pricing some sectors a little bit lower than others? Um, I have always struggled with uh, domestic retailers because they tend to whip around. So sentiment will shift quite quickly as to, you know, whether the Australian consumer is doing well or doing badly. Um, And it's always seemed to be a sector that you kind of have to trade it on a three or six month view. And um, that's not, you know, that's not what we're good at and not what I'm focusing on. Um, So I either need to see a pretty big dislocation on valuation um, or something else that gives me a more medium or long term conviction. So uh, the, the stock that we like the most right now in the retail space is LaVisa. They do have stores in Australia. They sell costume jewellery. Um, they have stores in Australia, but the reason to own the stock is for the store rollout that they're doing in the US and in Europe. And so you actually don't need to worry that much about whether the Australian consumer is going to spend or going to lose their job. Um, you know, domestic economic conditions are not going to be the main driver of the stock in the future. And we really like being able to have some conviction in uh, earnings in the future being greater than they are today because of this more structural driver rather than shorter term cyclical conditions. I think that's really encouraging for investors. This point about retail, uh, certainly for retail investors, there's a lot of sentiment attached to it too, right? People have a strong feeling about the company because they have personal experience of it, much less so than you might have Fortescue, for example, where you well, have less feeling. And, you know, I work for Fidelity and one of our most famous uh, portfolio managers was Peter Lynch, uh, who, who ran our Magellan Fund in the US. And he um, you know, wrote books about this, of, you know, you should buy the stocks that you know. Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, as a man on the street, as a retail investor, you actually do have a lot of insight of um, you know individual consumer offerings, products, stores, and so he was an advocate of that. Um, but uh, you know that's I think that's an easier strategy in the U.S. where there are thousands of stocks and you can find a, a product that you yourself is, have experienced, and then you can go look at the stock and realize you know that it's been overlooked by the market. Um, there's not so many opportunities of that in a small market like Australia. I think it's also particularly challenging now as retail disaggregates across online and various other mechanisms. One thing I was telling a story earlier, Afterpay would be probably in our top five most traded stocks. It's very, very popular. I should have seen that one coming because I follow quite a bit of um, design uh, forums and these sorts of things and I would find people in certain socioeconomic groups going, oh, I love this item or that item. It's so beautiful. Do they have Afterpay? 
Mm. And at the time, I was like, what the hell is Afterpay? Why on earth are you worried about whether or not it has Afterpay? Is that a thing? And, you know, two years later, everyone's using it and it's become de rigueur for every single retailer to have it. That's much harder to anticipate if you're experiencing the store in a shopping centre, for example, perhaps in the way Peter Lynch might have been talking about it. Mm, it's true, it's true. Um, the interesting thing about Afterpay is that they charge the merchants 4%. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Commonwealth Bank recently bought into Klarna, which is a sort of a competitor to Afterpay. And they said, the thing that amazed us was that you could get away with charging 4% because we've had all of these, you know, investigations into the interchange fee that we charge on credit cards and it was over, you know, individual basis points. Mm. The fact that you can charge 400 basis points, wow. <laughs> it's, uh, the other thing I find fascinating is that it has convinced an entire generation to bring forward their purchase decisions to a point where they actually can't afford it yet. That is quite fascinating, just being able to break it down over four payments, <laughs> saying that, you know, lay-by was a thing, yeah. But you had to go into a store four times to pay it off. There were a lot of, a lot of structural impediments to using lay-by. It was quite yeah. tedious and very few people would use it. But making it easy to do on a phone has encouraged an entire generation to now spend money they don't have. Mm. It's uh, well, interesting to see how that plays out. One of the banks has told us that uh, when they look across their customer group, the afterpay users generally turn out to be worse credit risks. So it's unclear yet how much this is just cash flow management mm. and how much this is being used by people who don't have any alternative uh, and how, you know, that reliance uh, is going to you know, build up through time. That's, that is absolutely fascinating. That's the value of big data, right? You can see that kind of thing coming through and playing out in a longitudinal way. That's... Um Right, that wasn't where I was intending to take this conversation, <laughs> but it would definitely food for thought for a lot of our investors who uh, who've really enjoyed playing in the pay now, no, buy now, pay later oh, space. Yeah. The pay later is the critical component, um, or pay not at all might be the other way. Um, any sectors that are looking particularly attractive to you in this particular environment? Um, well, as I said, you know, I tend to be constantly looking at every sector and trying to find uh, stocks that are attractive uh, within there. Um, so, you know, we can find opportunities in most spaces of the market. Um, you know, I, 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 my mind just goes to individual stocks. Um, rather, it's really hard for me to kind of make a blanket assessment because I can always find stocks that I like and stocks that I dislike um, pretty much in any sector. It's, um, that's absolutely fair enough. And even in that, uh, as I said, buy now, pay later space, there's a lot of our investors trying to pick a winner in that. It's a clear sector where if there is going to be a winner and they're not regulated into infinity um, and things don't change dramatically, then, you know, one winner might well take significantly more than the others. I mean, one of the lessons of, you know, the past year or two has been that you do, you have needed to have something in the high growth software space. And this, again, is networking of QE. QE, where interest rates come down, does two things to market, two completely different things. One, it makes bond proxies look more attractive. So your infrastructure names like Sydney Airport uh, or even Telstra or even the banks with their yield, um, they look more attractive because the interest rate, the yield on bonds itself is so low. But the other thing it does is when you have a lower discount rate in your valuations, then the value of future cash flows becomes higher today. And that rewards growth stocks who generally aren't paying a dividend today, but are growing with a lot of their value in the future. And so that's part of the driver of why these uh, software or fintech names have really done so well, is that as you price in lower interest rates, you get a much bigger 
inflection in the valuation for them. And so you've had to own something in that space to do well in this market. Um, you know, putting all of that together, um, you know, the stock that we have owned in that space has been WiseTech. We began as uh, pre-IPO investors in that. Um, and so our entry price uh, was close to $3. And so, you know, when WiseTech shares get up to $30, mm-hmm. that's been a really great return. Um, now, you know, we've been uh, trimming our position because that uh, trajectory of growth kind of outpaces everything else in your portfolio. And so you have to size the bet accordingly. And uh, the risk reward shifts when a stock uh, becomes so well appreciated by the market. There's less opportunity, obviously, than when the market's more skeptical about it. So we've brought the position back down, um, but that has kind of been uh, our holding that we've had in that very high growth high return, um, low incremental capital, um, you know, fast growing valuation space of the market, um, you know, whether it's across fintech or, you know, software technology. That one's a fabulous example. I watched your recent webinar and you made a comment about a stock that had a triple digit (laughs) valuation. I wondered if that was it. Yes, 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 that was it. That was it. But I mean, the the interesting thing about uh, a stock like WiseTech is, yes, it's on a a triple digit PE, which makes me squirm. But you have to do the thought experiment of uh, the majority of their OPEX is developers who are creating new products and new enhancements to products for the future. So what you could do is say, well, actually, the WiseTech product today is fantastic, and you don't actually need a factory there to churn it out because it's a software good, not a physical good. So let's sack all the developers. Let's cut the cost base way down. Suddenly, your earnings would really sharply inflect upwards. Your PE could come all the way down. You'd feel so much better about owning the stock because it would look so much more sensible mm. on, a, on a more normal PE. But would the company be worth more? No, clearly it would be worthless. So what that points to, and, and part of why we, we're getting this big dispersion in valuations, where kind of the top quartile or quintile of valuations are really going much higher than you've seen that top layer in previous periods, is because you now have these companies where investing to grow is coming through the PL as OPEX. Mm. So previously, if you had a, a company and it wants to double its sales, it has to build another widget factory. So that's capital expenditure and it goes through the balance sheet and then gets depreciated. Um, when you have a software business and they're investing to grow, then it's developers. And so the vast majority of that is actually going through the PL. Some of it might be capitalized and amortized later, but the vast majority of it is going through the PL. Um, and so when that happens, um, the you know our accounting standards don't differentiate between what's expenditure to support today's sales and expenditure to support future sales. Um, so when you strip all of that back and look at the cash that's coming through and, and put it into your DCF or your MPV valuation, um, actually, you know, it, it's a lot less scary on those kind of cash-based measures than on, um, you know, more traditional P&L-based measures. That's a beautiful way of explaining it. I, um, so I talk about this a lot because I'm still really proud of it. I bought CSL at $15, and uh, that's my equivalent of WiseTech. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I was very young at the time, but it was still, it was quite exciting. And one of the stories about CSL that was told even back then was that they have this really high quality plasma business, but they also have this extraordinary R&D pipeline that they keep investing in and investing and investing. And we don't know which parts of that are going to be the things that take off, but something might just be it. And you get all of that for free. That was the story at 
$15 and it's still a story now, which I love. I think that's kind of cool. But it's a similar concept to the extent that that, that investment, uh, it shows up in cost, right? And you don't necessarily anticipate what it may actually deliver in the future. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say that's definitely definitely true. The same, same kind of dynamic is playing out in CSL. Still, all these years later, all these years later. So we were talking a little bit about how pundits have gotten this year so badly wrong, which has been quite interesting to watch. What sort of attributes are you looking for in a company to ensure that at the macro level, even if the pundits are completely wrong or they're completely right, that you've got a meaningful chance of ensuring good quality outcomes for your investors? So... um you know, first in the portfolio go stocks that are just standalone. These are great investments. I think they're fundamentally undervalued, undervalued, and I think have great potential to grow their cash flows in the future. Um, so, you know, a company in in that category has been Linus, rarest producer, um, throwing off cash, able to reinvest to compound those cash flows into the future. Great, put that in the portfolio. But then um, I am looking to add in kind of best names from each sector, and it's the diversification of those that gives you the resilience. So what makes me really nervous is if I come in in the morning and all of my largest holdings are green because I know that the market sentiment is going to shift tomorrow and that means that then I've got a chance that all of those holdings go red. So I, um, I, I'd like to be nicely schizophrenic. <laughs> I want you to look at my major holdings in the portfolio and not be able to figure out my macro view. Now, you know, I have a macro view, um, but I try to be really careful not to let that macro view drive the shape of the portfolio because I don't think it's a robust basis for delivering investment returns. So, uh, you know, the big barbell in the market this year has been trade war on, trade war off. And so I want to have stocks that are going to do well if the trade war gets worse. And I want to have stocks that are going to do well if the trade war gets better. And that way, the market can go, go back and forth and flip-flop back and forth. And, uh, you know, when it flips one way, these stocks will do well. When it flips the other way, those stocks will do well. But through time, you're just going to chip away and get basis points here and there from your individual stocks doing well, rather than positioning yourself for a macro turning point. I, that one's such a spectacular example because clearly, you know, tweets are driving and driving valuations in many cases and you know, hundreds of basis points on the back of a tweet. That's a that's a scary world to invest in if you are measured on a daily basis or even a monthly basis. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to get conviction on the direction of the next tweet. <laughs> yeah, no, you actually probably wouldn't want to know. Mm. You probably would want to stay well away from that, I think. Uh, any big bets you're making right now? Uh, well, um, large positions in the portfolio, CSL, as we've discussed, um, at Lovisa and uh, Linus. Uh, also, uh, we like Coles. Uh, we like the defensiveness of that business and the chance that they've got to reinvest into their supply chain and continue to do well into the future. Um, in the energy space, uh, fans of oil search. Uh, we like the um, prospectivity of the assets that they've got in Alaska, as well as we think that the PNG um, approvals go through and they'll continue to deliver business uh, value from the base business in Papua New Guinea. Kate, thank you so much. You and your team manage money, obviously, and that's where you spend your time, but you also produce some fantastic insights and help people understand all of these complex issues. And also I think that point you make about stripping out the macro view so you can just focus on the quality of the companies is really helpful for people when we get a bit carried away uh, following every tweet. So how do investors keep up to date with what you're 
putting in the public domain and the conversations that you're having? So uh, the best way to hear our uh, views is to go to our website, www.fidelity.com.au and sign up for our Insights newsletter and that comes out about monthly. Uh, and then you can check uh, between newsletters. Uh, we post a lot of content onto the website. Uh, you can see uh, webinars from me and our other portfolio managers. There's quite a bit of information there. Fantastic. And you have both listed and unlisted options, which are not options, options, but products, um, which for our investors are always attractive. Kate Howard from Fidelity, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we hope this episode has been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, we do love to hear from you. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.